0: Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. My name is Leslie Lamb, and I'm the host and producer of the Crypto Unstacked podcast. For regular listeners of The Real Vision Show, it's great to meet you, and it's great to have you back for another episode. I have the special opportunity today of guest hosting this episode, and with me is Daniela Loftus, or Danny as I call her, uh, founder of a digital fashion platform called This Outfit Does Not Exist, which aims to bring digital fashion to life. Denny, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Thank you so much, Leslie. I am well. How are you doing?
0: Incredible. So excited to have you start off this series that we're hoping to do on the intersection of the metaverse and fashion. And I know you're a leading voice here. So It's incredibly uh, exciting to be speaking with you today. And, you know, I want to explore one big topic, which is why the future of fashion is going to be digital, right? And I think an extension of this question um, cover a number of topics. So, for example, what does Web3 fashion even mean? Right. To the average person who doesn't quite understand um, the progress in the fashion industry as we understand it, much less this digital fashion world that's exploding um, and kind of heading into the metaverse. Right. So we're going to explore that question. Maybe another thing that you can talk about is how is digital fashion democratizing consumption for the everyday person? and how brands are looking to execute in this space and you know we'll also touch on interesting um you know questions like what is the changing landscape of digital identity and reputation in parallel digital and physical worlds um that is a huge topic that i know you have interest in uh so yeah how do you think about that
1: well okay so so where to start so i think I think I'll start at the very beginning. And I think just answering the question of actually, why is digital fashion coming about and why is it actually needed? So, before I start, I know that many people actually don't even understand the word digital fashion. You can be from the Web3 space or you can be from, you know, the physical space. And it still is quite an unfamiliar term. So, the way that I define digital fashion is just quite simply any worn garment created, you know, digitally. And so for me, that spans three different categories. So first of all, you have what I would term physical digital fashion, which I know sounds like an oxymoron, but refers to physical garments created using digital design software. And I think for large brands, it's quite a heavy transition, but it's also more comfortable and easier for them to feel confident in tech in the back end rather than the front end. So, you know, we've had Tommy Hilfiger go into this space, digitizing the entire product library. You've also had Burberry implementing 3D design software, but everything produced is physical. So that's physical digital. Secondly, you have this category um, called fidgetal, and that's a word that some people love and some people hate, but it's the fusion of physical and digital. And for me, it means digital clothing worn on physical people. And that's actually originally how I got into the space. Um, I saw the colossal potential of tapping into the influence economy market, but making it more sustainable and also actually more creative. And so I started an account where I wore digital fashion and also wrote about it. And, you know, this can constitute digital renders where you send in a photo of yourself and a company renders a garment onto you. And it can also constitute you know, AR filters as well. Um, But the key is it's a human being wearing a digital garment. And then we have, you know, our final market. Um, And it's the one that I'm most excited about. And it's what I would refer to as fully digital fashion or direct to avatar. And this manifests itself, you know, most commonly in games. So, you know, there's a colossal skins market that already exists in games Mm -hmm. like Fortnite, games like Roblox, games like Animal Crossing. And then recently what we've also seen is this movement to avatars as PFPs or picture for profile. So, you know, dressing your Bourday pup you know, now in Adidas, if you want, um, you know, or your world of women. And there have also been a couple of interesting derivative projects in the space. So that's the final category, which is fully digital. And I think in terms of why, first of all, this is necessary. And then secondly, why now? Mm-hmm. Fashion for me has always been absolutely fascinating because it's a signifier of identity um, that is welded to you. So as a human being, you know, you have multiple ways of signaling who you are, your affiliations, your status, etc. that can span the artwork you buy, the house that you own, you know, your car, a ton of different stuff. But with fashion, it's actually worn on your person. So it becomes intractable and it becomes inseparable. And for a long time, you know, from a consumer perspective, the fashion industry has operated as something that is, you know, exclusive and gated and less and less as the years progress. And, you know, fast fashion has allowed people to self-express at a cheaper price point, Mm -hmm. but nonetheless, you know, people from various regions in the world, people from various social classes have been excluded from modes of self expression. And on the creator side, you have had this immense inequality that is pervasive. You know, um, twenty companies within the fashion space are defined as super winners and have a hundred percent, over a hundred percent of the industry's economic profit. It's incredibly hard for new entrants to break in, and that's because on the one side of the spectrum, if you're going after you know the cheap um, fast fashion market, mass economies of scale are necessary to break in. And you have companies like Shane, you have companies, you know, like Primark, Zara, et cetera, who have these economies of scale and therefore can undercut on price point. And then obviously on the luxury side, you have this prestige, which yes, you know, a couple of young designers will break in, but it's built up over years and years and years with significant investment. And it's controlled by a medley of gatekeepers who've been in the industry for years and therefore control your exposition. And so... And actually couple that with just you know the high sunk costs of being a fashion designer. So if I graduate from fashion school, I have to invest in creating my collection mm-hmm. with absolutely no knowledge that it's going to be bought, that it's going to be worn, or that I'm actually going to get the eyeballs that I want, which therefore means that you have an industry with you know quite a high level of inequality in terms of who can break in and who can create these modes of self-expression. And then actually who can consume and self-express. So I think it's been something that's been rife for disruption for many, many years.
0: I love that. Actually, let's, let's dig in deep into your background and your story, right? Because you don't come from the fashion industry. No. Yet you have this incredible insight on the existing challenges within the industry. And you're already doing something about it, right? So... Peel that story back a little bit for us.
1: Okay. <laughs> for so um, grew up loving fashion, you know, watching Alexander McQueen, Thierry Mugler. And I think from actually a creative standpoint, I really loved the designers that first of all created stuff that was very otherworldly, but also had this kind of ingrained political message. McQueen, you know, colossally, Westwood also. And what I liked about, you know, the fashion of those years is that it would be very, very representational. So in the early days, if you were westward, you were a punk, not, you know, you were wearing westward to signal status. And as I got older, I noticed the shift where fashion was becoming actually more of a signifier of wealth than a signifier of, you know, collective affiliation. Mm. And, you know, even around that, when I was like 16, I was trying to do, you know, a project on top of my A-levels on how consumption in China... Was influenced by a history of, you know, communism, and you know the value of signalling there, and so I think I've always found the psychology behind identity very, very interesting, and always seen fashion as this route to expressing identity, and therefore being quite interested in what people wear from that context. Um, so then up until I was, you know, seventeen, eighteen, I thought I was going to go into fashion, and then I think you know, I remember having this existential crisis and being like. You know, I'm not a designer, I can't create. I don't actually also think I'm values aligned with this industry. And so, you know, pivoted and actually went into social impact. So, I was working for a social impact fund in New York for a bit. And then I ended up um, in the kind of original, you know, boom, or one of the original booms, working for a company which was using blockchain to lend to financially underserved populations in emerging markets. And, you know, that was a real baptism by fire for me. I was the first hire. I was doing everything from our BD to running our ICO to managing our t- Telegram group. And, wow. you know, we had 150 consultants we were working with that then went down to five, that then went down to 300, you know, as the market fluctuated. And so I saw immense potential of blockchain, you know, already in that period, um, but then when I moved back to London, I went into a much kind of wider angle of innovation consulting. So worked for this really tremendous organization, um, which is part of a group called Founders Forum. And what we would do is we would go into large corporates, so completely across the board sector agnostic. So worked with everybody from large energy clients to, you know Facebook to you know media, and basically would go in and say, here's how emerging tech is going to disrupt your industry in the next five years. Here's how you can and should adapt. And here is, you know, here are our guidelines. And actually, we will take you through this process. So we would run accelerators. We would advise on investments and acquisitions. And I never got staffed on a fashion client while I was there. But that awareness and interest in the industry kind of came back to me then. So started monitoring what was going on in fashion technology. So had this massive spreadsheet of 500 companies and were just going, you know, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, knew about the market for gaming, also knew about the fabricant who are phenomenal, were one of the first early adopters. But what really changed the game for me was when a year ago, um, actually a little bit over now, I read an article where Gucci said, we're going to design clothes to be worn completely digitally in the next few years, and something just completely clicked for me because at that point there'd been a gaming market which aside from Louis Vuitton collaborating on a League of Legends um, League of Legends, Team gift, the tournament, you know there wasn't a crossover between gaming and fashion particularly mm-hmm. and then you know the fabricant were doing amazing work, but it wasn't wearable on human beings yet. so when I read that I was like you know, this is, this is the future of the industry. It's so obvious for me, you know, and originally it actually came through an influencer economy perspective. So I was like, you have, there was a statistic that I don't know if I a hundred percent believe that one in 10 garments, um, is bought in the UK is bought for Instagram, which it just, for me, it seems like way too mind blowing to be true, but you know, there's a degree to which that's a reality. So I was like, Okay, you know you can consume virtual clothes. They're sustainable. You can create a great photo, and actually, as a B two B value proposition. If you're an editor of a magazine or a content creator, that's super valuable. Mm-hmm. And so, I looked into the market, and there were a couple of marketplaces at that point that were coming up. So you had everybody from you know DressX, you had Replicant, you had um, XR Couture, and you know these were like three four months into inception of actually allowing human beings to wear them. And I then was like, okay, I think this is important for the fashion industry to see. So I just created a side hustle where I wore the clothes on an Instagram account and then coupled it with these like 5,000 word long explainer essays on why this technology is going to be disruptive. And was like, you know, this is more tech VC audience, fashion people will be excited by the imagery and hopefully also then, you know, read the articles. And then that, you know, took off in ways that I could never have expected. So, what
0: year was that?
1: That was um, that was a year ago
0: now. A year ago, okay. So, on your homepage, on this outfit does not exist. You write that as far back as May twenty nineteen was when the first digital only dress um, was sold mm-hmm. by the fabricant for ninety five hundred U.S. dollars, right? So, this is even before the time you really got. I guess, inspired or motivated to kind of fully pivot into this digital fashion space. Did you know about that Yeah. back in
1: 2019? Yeah, I, I did know about that. So there were two um, inaugural digital fashion kind of drops pre-mainstream. And so it was a fabricant digital dress, which was the first digital fashion NFT. And it was auctioned off um, for $9,500, which at the time the press went Crazy about. Whereas at you know this point you'd be like, what a bargain, amazing. (laughs) Um, And it was bought. um, It was bought and worn um, by the wife of you know this prominent collector. I knew about it, but I knew that this kind of rendering onto a human being was a one-off. And so I was interested to see where where it moved to. There was a second thing that was interesting where um, a brand called Carlings worked with Vice's creative agency to drop an all digital collection. So similar process. Um, I think it sold out almost immediately, but rendering onto human beings. But you know, these were tiny little sample sizes, and I think it was, I think it was when I all of a sudden the Gucci thing just made something click in my head because all of a sudden it was mainstream brands taking it seriously, mm-hmm. and I think mainstream brands are in a very interesting position where I would say historically they've been relatively technologically adverse, aside from on the back end. And even actually on the back end, and that's because these brands are you know built around craftsmanship. And I think there's still a stigma in the space where digital is not seen as a craft. you know digital creators consistently you know get ridiculously low offers despite the fact it takes them you know weeks and hours and incredible quantities of talent to create these garments. and so, And also, obviously, tangibility has always been something important in physical fashion. And so tech's kind of been portrayed as a bit of a gimmick. And Gucci has always been hyper-innovative. But, you know, all of a sudden, seeing that they were taking that seriously, I was like, you know, this is going to be everywhere.
0: Yeah, well, you mentioned that digital fashion will have a total addressable market of $10 billion by 2030. And you predicted that this year was going to be that shift, right, from, oh, this is an interesting idea, maybe a fad, to actually seeing adoption, right? I don't think we're seeing that adoption at scale just yet because people are just trying to figure out what is happening in this space and hence the reason for this conversation. Um, But I think that's exactly what we saw this past year. It was the adoption of use cases You know, when it comes to NFTs, it's not to say that every NFT has to have utility. But when you look at the intersection between NFTs and fashion, that's where it's taking engagement between a brand and a consumer to another level. Would you say that's sort of accurate? Or is there like a larger narrative to this?
1: So I completely agree um, with that in terms of, you know, bringing things to another level, you know, what you've seen, so we've had very, very slow adoption in the digital fashion NFT space. And I'll go into that in a a second. But obviously what you see with digital art projects and, you know, other collectibles in the space is you have these very interesting bonded relationships, which kind of straddle these supercharged communities, plus these loyalty schemes, you know, airdrops, POAPs, Abilities to give, you know, reward participants with access to specific drops, which revenue generate, and then communities which have a vested interest in success of brand and are rewarded for success of that brand. And, you know, in the case of certain projects, for example, Board Ape Ape Yacht Club can monetize off the IP that you are provided um, with through ownership. And all of these things are so counter to the traditional ethos of fashion. Um, but yet, you know, some of the most powerful consumer incentives that you could imagine. So I think that's definitely something that has immense potential in the space. I think the utility thing that you touched on is absolutely crucial, and I think the reason that there is not this NFT, you know, this NFT ownership, um, is because what we have at the moment is this very interesting trade-off, and hyper problematic trade-off between wearability. And ownership, and what I mean by that is, if you are a digital fashion creator, unlike in the physical world, you know wearability is not a byproduct of the creation of your garment. You create something using a three D design software, and then you actually have to elect, you know, how and where it's worn, and that's often, you know, actually a big decision or a big hurdle. Are you going to go digital? Are you going to go digital, etc. The platforms with the highest quantities of wearers and the highest, you know, adoption all operate currently as walled gardens. So, you know, you want to bring something in to Snap or Facebook um, or, you know, Instagram as a filter. You are then faced with losing complete ownership of what you've created. At present, um, if you're going into Instagram or you're going into Snap, you can't monetize. You don't get the data on the consumers wearing your items. But, you know, flip side, 4.5 billion social media users. So... You get that access. You know, same equivalent in the environments where digital fashion is most worn in games. So, you know, Fortnite, 375 million players, you know, Roblox, another absolutely colossal market. You know, even there were some interesting um, modding things going on in Animal Crossing. But when you bring those in as a creator, you know, you no longer have the ability to set your price. You know, you have those platforms taking commission. And actually, then, as a consumer of those garments, there are these, you know, tremendous cultures actually around digital fashion wearership in game. And I think what I find very fascinating is how those have arisen in not what I would call fashion native environments. So Fortnite, um, fascinatingly, has something called a default culture which exists where. If you have a default skin, so the most basic skin possible you get when you start playing the game, you are actively shunned by other players. There's an entire YouTube genre with like, you know, hundreds of millions of views called, like, you know, uh, like, I slayed a default in Fortnite. You know, that is a massive component. And you have kids, you know, going to their parents and begging them for money because if they don't have the right skin in Fortnite, they are then bullied when they enter, you know, their classrooms. And, there is no direct correlation between a fortnight skin and your quality of gameplay. you know, yes, there might be a vague indicator that you've had the ability to you know complete a challenge which somehow modifies your skin, but you know you having a good skin doesn't make you a better player, and yet it's become crucial to the culture um mm. so I think that's fascinating, but then obviously, what you have is these worn environments where in order to participate and succeed and if we're talking back about identity you know affiliate show status you know self-express you need those skins but yet you know when you invest the time and money into them they aren't yours fortnite doesn't have a legal secondary marketplace within games so you can't revenue generate from them and actually 81 percent of players in the us who are aware of skins said they'd spend more money if they actually could revenue generate from them and also you know and this doesn't come front of mind to the majority of people buying skins in Fortnite, but you know, if that platform goes bust, you lose your skin completely. So it's a very, very interesting dynamic that creators face, where if they want ownership, they can't. Um, if they want wearership, they can't have ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of, you know, on the flip side, you know, if you're minting an NFT through OpenSea or SuperRare, etc. It often ends up being you're minting a kind of static garment. Maybe it's a video of a, a garment being worn on an avatar, but it can't actually port in and be worn by the consumer. So you have, you know, this class of collectors, and then you have this class of wearers. And currently, those those two groups are separated, which for me totally invalidates the, um, the value of digital fashion as an, as an asset. And you know, the final thing to note is the the fact that you can't port you can't own an item and then port an item into multiple games is Mm -hmm. roughly the equivalent of saying, Hey, you know, I, I have the most amazing dress, but when I leave a party, I have to take it off. You know, where's the value in that?
0: I mean, when you put it that way, it sounds ridiculous, right? I mean, you should be able to re-wear it wherever you are and have it mean maybe something different depending on the context. But then again, when you flip through magazines right? And, you know, maybe it's a red carpet event. You're not going to see the celebrity in that exact same dress again. True. True. Right? It's like, it's unique to that experience, to that moment. And it means something Mm. um, that then gets attached to to their identity. For for example, Lady Gaga's um, meat dress, right? I don't know any facts (laughs) about Lady Gaga, but I remember that moment. And It's part of my impression of who she is, which, you know, in the past was someone who really wanted to veer off in alternative pathways um, to be creative, not only through music, but through fashion, uh, to make a statement, right? Making a social impact. I I think um, it was a statement for her to wear that meat dress, right? Um, So yeah, it's, it's much more than just oh, let me put on this dress because, I don't know, a designer decided to collaborate with me for this event. Um, But it's a much more, I think, personal experience for a lot of people um, when they choose intentionally what to wear for what event. Totally agree with that. Yeah. So I think what's really interesting about this conversation is we're honing in on why does fashion need to be on-chain, digital fashion, Mm -hmm. to be specific? Because you can create digital fashion and different softwares and just say, look, I I made a wearable item, right? And it's something that could be a 3D rendering or just a 2D rendering. Um, But I think what maybe really categorizes or characterizes, rather, digital fashion is the components that you mentioned, how it changes ownership and monetization of fashion for the everyday person, uh, so for the consumer, as well as for the designer as well. I wonder if there's anything missing from kind of that reasoning. You know, when, when people ask, why does fashion need the blockchain, right? Yeah. Like when you go really high level, you know, what's the purpose? And I think you filled in most of that gaps, but is there anything else?
1: Yeah. So there are. So I have a couple. So I think again, you know, you can take amazing inspiration for the fashion industry from, you know, everything from DeFi to what this the amazing stuff being done in digital art. And I think just the crucial thing is blockchains can automate and make trustless numerous different um different qualities that promote the values that we're trying to push in the fashion space. So, you know. Equity, let's start with that one. It's a key one. So what you can do with digital fashion is you can democratize, first of all, you know, ownership, but also you can democratize and make sure there's equity in reimbursement for garments. So in the physical fashion world, if let's look at the supply chain, you have people who make the garment, you know, cut the patterns, etc. You then have, let's say, the the designer who designed the garment, and then you have the CEO. And the way that it works is the designer will be paid a salary. Those who created the garment will probably be paid a, you know, very, very negligible salary. And the majority of profits are going to go to the brand or CEO. Mm -hmm. With digital fashion, you know, you get to, to have a creator directly reimbursed for a garment, but also actually every single other person involved in that supply chain. So, you know, let's take your scarf as an example the check okay so just for anybody just listening on audio it's a check scarf so you know the scarf the design of the entire scarf is an item somebody created that somebody created the check maybe also somebody selected the color and you can fractionalize that meaning that every single time that scarf so on primary sale when that scarf is sold if it's sold for let's say 100 pounds you know you can have 33.3 Thirty-three point three pounds reoccurring, or whatever, depending on the work distribution, go mm-hmm. to the you know the all three of the creators, and then what you can have is when they are resold on a secondary marketplace, you can have a royalty fee programmed in that is also split between all of those creators. So not only do you have this amazing ability that, you know, blockchain facilitates creators. Benefiting from the consistent success of their item, you know, easiest thing to to use to demonstrate it is the art market where you often have artists selling work on primary before they get famous. And then as they get successful, a work that may have originally been sold for $100 is then sold for a million dollars and they do not benefit at all. But with blockchain technology, you can program in royalties, meaning that they have a consistent source of income. And as their success increases, you know, they can monetize which is great because it counters the whole starving artist rhetoric you can have the same thing with fashion as a fashion brand grows and you can have you know this equality and this equity that is so desperately needed within the industry for creators so i think first of all you know that's exciting secondly this idea of ownership so as somebody who owns a garment you know as i've just said to you i want to wear it and you know, you've you've touched on a very important point, which is that not everything should be worn everywhere. And I think it's very interesting because I think that applies very well to various virtual environments. So, you know, you have some which are super high depth. You have others that are voxelized. And if I was wearing a very intricate dress by a designer like Iris Van Herpen, I don't think it would actually be valuable if it was voxelized. I think it would look like, you know, maybe a graceful mess. And I don't think anybody wants that. Um and also things are meant to be worn for specific occasions and that's why I also think it's very exciting that virtual environments are moving towards being these social cultural spaces where events are happening where these garments can be worn but you know you want the optionality of being able to wear it you know if it is yours so i think that's very important as well as the fact that obviously as a fan and as a participant you can be rewarded and brands can also have the knowledge Of who their consumers are and how to tap into them, and also how to reward them for that participation. But then I think, you know, the final thing, and this is also something that I am, you know, building a business around to be launched in the new year, is that digital fashion items are digital assets. And I think that this has been largely overlooked by the market. You know, I was trying to do some market sizing recently, and I genuinely think that. Digital fashion collection this year potentially has only had like, you know, 4,000 ETH at an absolute maximum deployed. Um, mm. And that, you know, straddles Artifact Studios for obviously sneakers. And then, you know, the, the collection of ETH that my DAO itself um, has put into the space. And if you compare that to the digital art market, I think there were $3.2 $3. billion of sales um, on OpenSea, I think in August alone. That makes it a tiny fraction, whereas, you know, in the physical world, you're dealing with a market that's $1 trillion. So I think that just something hasn't clicked quite yet. And so the thing that I would like to really click is, first of all, digital fashion is not really valued as an asset class or a collectible in the physical world in the way that, you know, its equivalents that have had success in the NFT space are. So, you know, you look at cars, you look at watches, you look at um, you look at art. Those are prominent collectibles, and part of the reason is when they have their utility that links back to your identity. So the way they are displayed, you know, you can have a lovely car on a pedestal in a car collection. You can have an artwork in your home. Um, watches and sneakers in general stay in the box, but you know, those are modes which resist wear and tear. Whereas for fashion to be really exhibited in full force, it has to be worn. And ship implies. A degeneration of the asset. Mm -hmm. That is not something that exists in the in the digital space anymore. And so what you have is first of all, you have assets that can be used as in the way that they are meant to be used. And by acquiring provenance, they don't actually lose value, Um, just based on, you know, literally value in terms of what is their condition. Then obviously, you have on top of this, you know, this beautiful marriage between wearership and ownership and where that exists you have the ability to actually deploy varying business models which encompass that potential for utility so the rental market which is you know which is a multi 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 billion dollar market in the physical world and that's where there is you know wear and tear on the garments all of a sudden you can have rental in the digital space which a has no wear and tear. Secondly, can happen in a way that's trustless and automated. And thirdly, it can have full transparency, um, which is fascinating. There's also what I would call where to earn. And where to earn is, would be a brand directly reimbursing either an individual with a specific quantity of social clout. And I think there are going to be interesting social clout metrics, equivalents of blue ticks in the metaverse. <laughs> um, for either that individual wearing the garment or for let's say you know you have a festival in Decentraland and you want a flash mob where every single person's wearing Gucci, you could have activations that reimburse like that. Um, you know other stuff, digital fast fashion that decomposes, you know after a specific period of wear. Maybe you know fashion in your wardrobe that actually, in your virtual wardrobe that changes with the season, and you know subscription-based digital fashion. But the key is first of all no wear and tear, and secondly all automated, and so. These are assets that can not only be, you know, collected and monetized on a, you know, secondary sales market through selling, but also there are a ton of other, you know, ways that they can maximize values as assets. And, you know, that is what I am currently building out. Mm
0: -hmm. Incredible. I mean, (laughs) for people who are tuning in who are terrified of social, I imagine (laughs) hearing what you've just said, right, on an absolute basis, they might say, this sounds so stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to figure out how to build an online identity and what gets attached to that. Right, there are beautiful aspects to that, which is like all the things that you've just mentioned. Right, democratizing, um, you know, the the kind of multidimensional ways that you can build up your image that extends way beyond physical limitations, right? That's awesome. There's also the sense of chasing exclusivity endlessly, right? In the same way that when you look at the intersection between NFTs and music, Mm. let's just take DJing, for example. I just had a DJ uh, on who's local to Hong Kong and he talked about how, DJing started off being very exclusive, right? You had physical records. If you didn't physically own the records, you couldn't play the music. But then look what happened. We, you know, saw basically streaming dominate the music industry where anyone through the power of democratization of music, right, owning music, um, any DJ could then, you know, play tracks, you know, that the next DJ halfway around the world um, could also be playing at the same, um, at a different venue, right? And so the exclusivity got lost
1: mm. over
0: the past, call it two decades. But then now with NFTs, we might see the re of exclusivity. If you don't hold, for example, if I'm a producer and I want to mint 100 NFTs for this track and I say, only those who own the NFT can play this track, right? All of a sudden, you know, you, you have this question, which is, is that really fair? I mean, from a monetization perspective, awesome, right? Producers, yeah. you know, though the reason why there are so many DJs now is in part because producers needed to have an additional channel of monetization. And so a lot of producers then became performers, DJs. And so now with nfts that's like another source of revenue right that they can then rely on and it's good for branding all these different things exclusivity in some ways can be very good um but then when you think about that democratization aspect it's like holy cow hmm maybe music can't be in the hands of lots and lots of people you know 20 years or i'm um, 20 years is a long time, but maybe 10 years down the line when NFTs are fully fledged, right? So, kind of bringing it back to fashion, I wonder if this might be stressful for a lot of people um, when the brands that dominate in the physical world then do things that make fashion even more exclusive to those who are able to spend the money, right, to purchase NFTs that make them the celebrities of the metaverse.
1: So love this. Love this as a question. I am much more bullish on the class of Web3 native designers that are going to come up than I am on physical brands entering the metaverse. Mm. You know, I was advising, you know, um, a large brand, you know, actually yesterday, speaking about, you know, the importance of brand strategy and all of this in this world. And for me, what has been absolutely fascinating in terms of fashion metaverse native engagement Is the fashion brands that have succeeded or done successful collabs with virtual worlds or proto metaverses are those that have actually shown respect to and to a degree been subservient to those environments. What we have in the physical world is I think large fashion brands are taste makers so they decide that something is a trend and then they impose it through you know intelligent targeted advertising and also due to the clout that they have on a consumer base you know yes you might have a degree where people really know their identities and they say no i don't like that i'm not going to buy it but you have consistent conditioning that this is what's cool this is what's going to allow you to be fashionable or affiliate or express in certain ways and therefore a large mass buys on those assumptions when you're moving into game What we've seen is these very, very strong communities and cultural spaces exist, and brands have actually had to say, we are not the tastemakers here. We have to provide value to this community, and we have to learn from this community. Um, I think a really interesting example is Gucci and Roblox. And I've done quite a bit of looking into Roblox and the way it's structured. And within the marketplace, different tiers of creators, let's say, can create different things. So certain people can create T-shirts, other people can create T-shirts and pants. A very small approved list can create T-shirt, pants, hats, accessories. And I'm pretty sure there's something only like 100 people on that list. And the way that Roblox worked and the way that it worked with Gucci is when brands enter, they get paired with one of these approved creators who is native to Roblox. And it's a partnership so it was a partnership between one of these creators and alessandro michele and so he was learning the language of the game and learning what you know first of all community value you know was so for those who actually are not consumers but just participants how are you serving the community of the game and then also obviously this absolutely fascinating concept of what is value when you have absolutely no scarcity you know you, can, you have unlimited materials. You could create anything. You know There is no limit on distribution. Um, Roblox chose time mechanics. So things were available for specific amounts of time. The object that was most valuable um, was a Dionysus handbag. And I believe it uh, retailed in the game for $5.50, retails for about $2,000 in, um, in the physical space, and then ended up getting resold for over $4,000. And this was not as an NFT, it was as an in-game good. And I think that shows for me just how well Gucci did on that. Um, Something to quickly touch on in that respect also is this idea that you are moving from providing for a consumer to providing for a community. And I think this has been a shift that brands have been undergoing for a very, very long um, time span, accelerated colossally by social media. So you know, if we think of the days pre-Instagram, a brand is catering to the buyer, you know, that that is the consumer brand relationship. With social media, all of a sudden, the people who determine a brand success are not only the consumers, but it's, you know, the millions of others who have, you know, an opinion, a voting right through their social media um, status to determine a brand success. You know, you've seen it with cancel culture. Um, And then what you have when you move actually into Web3 and also the metaverse is people are no longer voting with their likes, but they can actually vote with their stakes. And so all of a sudden brands need to have hyper cognizance of, you know, A, the community of consumers who can become democratized because instead of selling a bag for $2,000, you're selling it for $5.50, but also every single other person who determines the value of their token or or determines essentially their share price. And that is crucial in terms of large brands considering it. The reason that I am, you know, less bullish on large brands is that I think that we are entering a very, very exciting time where we're basically, we're, we're at the beginning of a revolution. And what I always say is Bored Apes and CryptoPunks have not come to Christie's because they are, you know, Jeff Koons or Damien Hurst. They've come to Christie's because they're representative of a future art movement you know, and a current collective vision that's shaping the future, we will have the same thing with Web3. We are going to have designers who are receptive to metaverse native needs. Those people are probably like 11 or 12 right now. They understand the user base and the aesthetic in ways that, you know, large brands, obviously they'll start employing these people, but, you know, inherently can't. And obviously, secondly, what you have with the gaming space, what you have with the crypto community, the values are values of equality and democratization and decentralization. There was always you know there's been an inherent you know tension between the concept of fashion and the concept of um you know of fashion and game um, and in-game identity because you know it's to do with self-expression. When you come into the metaverse, whereas fashion's always been seen as exclusive and gated, and so I think and I hope, even as the space expands and becomes more democratized and you know has wider adoption, we are still going to see motivation coming from those values. And with all of the things that I said to you before around the lower barriers to entry for creators coming in, that's the class of people that I want to see. You know, those are the groups, not you know a large fashion brand replicating its values in a metaverse native space.
0: I absolutely love that. And I think when you talk about community as well um, and kind of access to these digital you know, fashion items that are being created, um, I wonder if DAOs are sort of the necessary accelerant um, for brands to realize the power mm. of community i'm not necessarily talking about the mm, web3 native designers let's say right those who potentially start off with a following in the crypto space already and then they're building for their community um but rather you know those who are those who you are less bullish on right in terms of like how they see the power of community how they understand discord how they understand maybe telegram right these things where um Generally speaking, they're like email us if you have a question. You know, <laughs> chat with us in the web interface, a in and like a customer days. support team will reach out to you. <laughs> um, you know, when they kind of again think about engagement, bring engagement with a consumer to the next level. Um, I wonder to what extent brands will try to form DAOs or join DAOs. Um, how they might try to even, you know. I don't know, disrupt the existing <laughs> DAOs. Like, I don't know if there is that tension where crypto native people are like, they just, they won't understand it, you know, because it's, it's not about that one one participant that then leads a crowd, yeah. right? It's a collaborative, collective um, experience, which right now, to be fair, uh, can be quite exclusive uh, depending on which DAO you're in. Great. Um, but I mean, maybe talk a bit from the perspective of Red Dow, right? I mean, that could be interesting.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, first of all, you know, full disclaimer Red Dow, you know, is a very small Dow and therefore is inherently exclusive. There are, I think, now 45 of us. And, you know, what I'm excited about in terms of Red Dow is the fact that it's a real signaler that this space is being taken seriously. You know, we were a child of Flamingo Dow, which is, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, digital art down in the market. And one of the members essentially said, I actually see digital fashion as a very important vertical, despite the fact exactly as I said, there are probably under 200 designers in the space. And of those 200 designers, probably under 50, maybe under 20 have actually minted NFTs. So mm. it is a minuscule market, but it was an acknowledgement of potential. And the way that DAO operates, and it's you know, only two months old, so it's very, very young, is first of all, it's deployment of capital into the space, which is absolutely crucial in signaling this is valuable. And also as a digital designer, you know if you've graduated from Central St. Martins, it's a high opportunity cost to say, I'm going to learn this 3D software, especially when you see no routes to monetize. So just even showing that we're deploying capital to buy these works, I think is a good signaler for these artists. Mm-hmm. But also, you know we are looking at various incubation functions, also exposition in the space is crucial. So selling the concept of digital fashion to people is integral. Um, And then also we do have an advisory component. So we are open to advising mainstream brands on how to engage. And you know, we have had discussions and quite a lot of interest from mainstream brands exactly, you know, as you said, in joining the DAO, so they have awareness of the space. I think what would be integral in, I think there's basically a second type of digital fashion DAO needed. Mm. And, you know, the irony is I actually got bought in because I was speaking to an investor in the space and actually spinning up my own DAO. Um, The way that it was slightly different was it was really targeting Web3 native designers. So, you know, I was like, what are the key issues they're facing? Lack of deployment of capital, lack of knowledge around tools. There's also no cohesive tools. So, you know, you have to create your avatar on one place, you have to do, your digital design in another place, you need to do the lighting and shading, places to display the digital fashion, places to get it worn. So actually that's what I originally wanted to invest in, really this emerging class. What would obviously be very funny is if we had a, you know, a consortium slashed out of just the mainstream digital fashion houses, um, fashion houses. Not sure that would do really any good at all. I think what's very interesting or what could be very interesting as a route for digital fashion or for traditional fashion houses to go down is to create what would essentially be a board with a board with vested interest, where you create a DAO, let's say, as Gucci. The members of your DAO, you have a couple of people from Gucci. Then you actually have people from the community and you have people who are native, you know, metaverse native. And so... Obviously, one of the biggest powers of the DAO is the hive mind. So Red DAO, for example, you have a couple of people who are digital fashion, a couple of people who are mainstream fashion, but then you have everything from NFT art collectors to lawyers to game developers, and it's being able to put your heads together and share varied perspectives and also varied types of talent with, um, with the aim of furthering the space. And so what could be very interesting for one of these physical fashion brands is to create a DAO a as an advisory board where the people who are supporting the success of their product you know really actively in advisory roles who are metaverse native and crypto native are actually then you know receiving positive shares of the profits etc but also actually and i know these are colossally large organizations but you know dowing let's say dowing from those who make the garments to those who um, to those who are the designers, just the people essentially, you know, the core team involved in the success of a garment. Because, yes, I've said there is this amazing capacity for fractionalization, et cetera, and, you know, automatic reimbursement when you have fully digital fashion always becomes harder when you go, phys- go physical, unless, you know, you had a treasury, which then distributed it through a DAO, then that could be very, very interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like our conversation is one large thought experiment. A
1: oh, 100%. Um, and actually, the one thing I wanted to touch on around that that I don't think that I um, I've mentioned yet, but I think is important to say, one of the reasons that I see the digital space actually increasing the adoption for fashion is because what you have at the moment, you have these kind of these financial barriers to inclusion, but you actually also have physical barriers to inclusion. So... If you are not happy with the way that you look physically, why would you want to invest in enhancing your appearance? You know, aside from the fact we obviously live in a society that prioritizes that. You know, still, it's not going to be exciting for you. And if it is exciting for you, you're not going to say, I want to consume a neon green suit so everybody stares at me. You know, that is not going to be the way that you relate to your garments. In the digital space, the way that you cultivate your identity is not curated. It's fully created. So there was an interesting study um, that the Institute of Digital Fashion did who are absolutely phenomenal. And the study showed that it was just as important for an avatar to be able to have green skin or blue skin or red skin as it was for it to actually represent someone's skin color in the physical world, which I think really shows the elements of fantasy and escapism and creation which lay at the core of this. And so I think that in and of itself is going to open up who's excited about fashion, you know, quite substantially, as we've already seen within game. And obviously the second bit being this very interesting dynamic around anonymity. So there are still places, you know, quite a lot of places in the world where you are actually threatened if you wear specific items of clothing and express yourself in certain ways. And all of a sudden, when you move to the metaverse, those constraints aren't there either. So I also think it's going to be something that opens the market in that way as well.
0: Something that can be very culturally liberating, perhaps, right? In regions where you have to wear garments of clothing when you go out. And if you don't, then you get, you know, persecuted (laughs) for doing that, you know. And then this is particularly the case for women in many regions, right? But that concept of escaping realism, escaping the physical constraints that, you know, have been imposed quite subjectively, you know, and, and kind of just kept over time because this is how things have been done. Right. And why, why change things? There's, there's no need to, Um, but maybe it's really a cultural mandate. Right. But what if that same person who's seeking to be someone different, to not be like the next woman, for example, can create this. Um, identity in the metaverse where she's completely different from who she is in the physical world and thereby actually make it a political statement as well. Yeah. Yep. And so we're combining all the elements that really drew you into this digital fashion world, coming at it from a social cultural lens, Yeah. right? Exactly. And really seeing this space not as a um, oh yeah, we can just create garments from, or the shift from creating garments in the physical world into the digital world so that, I don't know, I can walk around in like a cool thing, but seeing it as another way to live life and to change, you know, constraints, cultural, political constraints and limitations uh, and challenges that we, you know, all individually probably identify with or have something to say, um, you know, but as, potentially dangerous to do so in in the physical world, right? So there's lots of ways that I think someone can express herself in the metaverse where, you know, fashion is just one way to do that. You know, this conversation obviously is about the intersection between the metaverse and fashion, but that's not to exclude, you know, all the other things that Web3 is trying to build out, right? Finance is a huge part of that, right? The, The emergence and the existence of Decentralized finance is partly the reason why NFTs even exist today. Right. And you want to talk about um, building in that royalty mechanism into the secondary markets, right? That changing the monetization for the creator, for the producer of of an item, um, that exists because there are blockchains available to do that. (laughs) And so there's this whole conversation about technology that. Obviously, we won't get into today, Um, but there are enablers outside of fashion that make it possible for you, Danny, to be, you know, already hitting the ground running, starting all the initiatives that you're doing, you know, um, doing the work with a number of organizations, including, you know, Red Dow, right? So I would love to wrap up our conversation today by asking you, what has been your favorite brand collaboration through this outfit does does not exist or maybe you know one in the past what's been one of your favorite ones
1: oh this is such this is such a good question so I'm gonna so I'm gonna go I'm gonna do a twofold so I'm gonna go for like two of the platforms that I think have done things that you know are really game-changing and really interesting and you know the first one is the fabricant so they were the OG digital fashion house. I had the pleasure of talking to Amber, who is, you know, founder creative director, um, quite recently, just at Art Basel. And you know, I said to her how unbelievable that you had this vision before anybody else, and you had it realised. You know, she was graduating from school, and she made the choice to, you know, make her collection digital. Before even you know, the advanced softwares existed. And she hustled and she was the first one to do it. And then, you know, obviously Fabricant became the first people to sell the digital dress in, you know, 2019. And they're now doing tremendous things. But what I've absolutely loved about their ethos is that they, you know, even before the NFT and the Web3 space took off, and completely actually separate to that, because they've taken it from a fashion lens, have promoted decentralization and equality at their very core. Cool. So Traditionally in the fashion industry, you have a problem with designers stealing other designers' designs, and you have a problem with, um, you know, competition. And they have said from the beginning that that is not the way that they are going to operate. And so they've, they've had these things called frops for years, where they will share their source files with the community and allow people to build off of them. And they're now actually building a low-code marketplace where... Digital fashion designers can create in collaboration with consumers, and the idea of making it low code is, you know, a similar idea to people having iPhones and being able to participate as photographers or the DJ thing that you were discussing. And they did a collaboration with Carly Kloss and Adidas, and mm. the way that they did it was they designed a jacket for Adidas, and then what they said is they went to their community and they said, "We also want you to take part. Let's have a challenge where we will give you the source files, and whoever creates, you know." The best thing based off this windbreaker jacket can have their work, you know, with Adidas essentially. And that is so disruptive and so non traditional and so values driven. So, always absolutely loved that. Second one that I want to bring up is a platform um, called the Dematerialized. And it was actually spun off of Luxo, which is a protocol which, you know, built by one of the lead um, developers of Ethereum and it's prioritizing. Identity and you know sovereign identity and all of those dynamics, and the dematerialized is a fashion marketplace built off of that. They are very Web three native, and because they're Web three native, what I've loved about the work that they've done, it's been hyper conscious in terms of pushing the boundaries of what can be done when you're dealing with, you know, an experimental space essentially. So they did a very interesting collaboration with a brand called Tribute Brand. Tribute Brand are in my eyes, the strongest digital fashion brand. Everybody should look at you know their renders. They are phenomenal. And what they did with Tribute is they said, okay, you know, we're going to tier this buying experience. So you had the first tier, which was just owning an AR filter where you could wear the garment, and obviously you also own it as an NFT on their platform. Second one was a digital render, which in general they you know these are higher quality, and there was a limited number. And then the third one was a physical garment. And what you got, you began by just getting, I, I believe it was just a sound, a sound is an NFT. And then you would have the physical garment made personally for you, shipped to your house. And for me, that just had so much uh. cognizance of the exciting technological powers, as well as you know what I really respect about the way that they've built. They've built in a way that, does not discourage people from the traditional industry from consuming. So, you know, in the same way as if you're trying to get people who are in fashion, you know, into games, you need to, um, I mean, gaming into fashion, you need to be respectful to and cognizant of the existing community. Same thing if you're doing, you know, fashion into crypto or fashion into games. If there is friction, you know, the type of friction, all of us in the crypto space have experienced when buying an NFT, you know downloading 55 wallets going on a, ver- a variety of decentralized exchanges if that exists no one in fashion will touch it and same thing with people being incredibly you know con- like conscious of ux and what dematerialized have done is they've really ensured that their platform i think you can buy in fiat but also just the experience is an experience that a fashion consumer would feel comfortable with and you know same thing with the fabricant and the fabricant studio but that you know that marriage is absolutely crucial um but, yeah, I think both of those platforms have combined a deep knowledge of what the future of fashion is going to look like with what the values powering the future of fashion will be in a way that has also, you know, wedded those elements of, you know, fashion, aesthetics, you know, easy on-ramp with being crypto and metaverse native.
0: I love this conversation so much, and I can't wait for this to come out and for the audience to really soak everything in. Danny, thanks so much for kicking off this series looking at the metaverse and fashion. I mean, it was an incredible macro lens on where this emerging space is going. And I'm so excited to have a leading voice on uh, to really build up that narrative for us. So
1: thanks so much. Thank you so much, Leslie.
0: Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com.